Hello and welcome to My Classic Soul, the podcast dedicated to the very best of classic soul and R&B music. I'm Bethany Dawson. Joining me today is the British Ambassador of Soul, David Nathan. Hi, David. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Today we're honouring the memory of perhaps one of the greatest singers in modern music history, Otis Redding. So David, talk us through how you discovered Otis. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, well, just to set the scene for you. So this is, you know, I'm talking about uh, around 1964, 1965. I was a teenager growing up in London. And um, I first became really interested in what we now call soul music at that time. Uh, and, and my introduction to soul music, or R&B as we called it then, I uh, really came in a, in, in a kind of circuitous way. Um, the actual true story is that one day I, I did my hair as a beetle cut instead of a, the other way it was, and I started getting into the music of the Beatles. And, I, and, and the thing that happened was in listening to the Beatles, I um, discovered on the back of their one of their first LPs, uh, they would reference some of the um, uh, black American artists at the time who they were influenced by and they would mention particularly Motown artists like the Marvelettes and um, the Miracles and so on and I was always intrigued by who, who are they who are, the, who are they you know and then um, you know, through a couple of different ways of hear, of seeing music on TV through a particular TV program called Ready City Go which was very popular at the time I would find out more about the R&B artists of the day uh, who would come to Britain and do television stuff. Anyway, how Otis Redding. Well, Otis Redding specifically uh, would have been, um, just because if you were a, an R&B fan, you would know who Otis Redding was. I, can't, I don't have any particular specific memory of like the first time I heard Otis Redding. It's just if you were an R&B fan, and there weren't many of us at that time, it was very kind of, it was very underground, a very kind of, I don't say clicky, but there was kind of, it wasn't like a mainstream thing. I mean, really, it wasn't. And, and people don't know that, necessarily know that there were groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones who were real, like, R&B fans. But we were a minority. And I used to write letters to the music papers of the day saying, oh, you should listen to the original versions of things. And I was a little kind of, you know, a little teen kind of like... You yeah, don't know. You, you know. These cover versions, they're horrible and da 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 you know, and anyway, so that's so at that time, you know, Otis Redding was known to the the this kind of small group of passionate British R and B fans. Now in America, he was much more well known. Of course, he had just begun to, you know, break through. You could say in the in the by about 1965, around that time, he was starting to be primarily still like probably playing to an African-American audience, but beginning to get a little bit of kind of traction amongst um, a wider audience, but not, not, to, the, not to a great degree. Um, I think the first Otis Redding record I ever heard, I'm, I'm just remembering now, was uh, a song called Pain in My Heart. And it was very, um, you know, emotive, very kind of hard. It's like hard, hardcore soul singing. Real, like, you know, I don't use a gut bucket is kind of a word that comes to mind, but very, you know, un un unadulterated, like, you know, 
Yeah, like he's sing, like you know, he's singing from that's why we call it soul music. Yeah, singing from his soul. So that's the first record I remember uh, hearing of his. Again, would have been amongst with all the other R&B fans in Britain. Um, but my first memory of like really knowing this guy was, you know, important. I guess you could say, would have been when I was working in a record shop in uh, London to earn pocket money. And I worked in a particular shop in uh, in uh, Wilson Lane in London, which was around the corner from where I lived. And uh, it was a record shop run by a Jamaican entrepreneur uh, whose name was Lee Gopthal. And Lee Gopthal used to import records from Jamaica for the then young Caribbean uh, audience, or not audience, uh, people who had come over as immigrants in, in, the, in the 50s and in early 60s and um, part of what we call in Britain the Windrush generation, mm-hmm. right? And they were young young men, mostly, mostly young men who, you know, they wanted to connect with home and, and this was, music was the connection. So Lee Gopthor also imported American records. So on Saturday mornings when the guys would come in to ask for the latest Jamaican record Scar or Bluebeat, they would also ask, what American, what American, what's the latest American record? And I, being an R&B enthusiast, would make sure I played them, my favorites or the kind of records of the day. And the first, the one that sticks out in my mind as the record that they, every, almost everybody who would come in on Saturdays would buy at the time it came out was Otis Redding's version of My Girl, The Temptations hit, which was not a hit in England. The, temp, it, well, the Temptations version wasn't a hit, but Otis Redding's was. And uh, they, yeah, it's kind of like a, one minute I'm like giving them a, I'm going to make a very obscure reference for those people who don't know Jamaican music, they wouldn't know who I'm talking about, but I would play them a Prince Buster, you know, Scar record, and then I'd say, oh, and here's this Otis Redding record. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. So they would buy, so kind of... Oh, smooth, so yeah, yeah. So Otis Redding kind of became, particularly amongst the, uh, you know, it's a, a Caribbean music community or, or just not even music community just people who would be buying records they they, they kind of took on took on out so to speak you know what i mean like they, he became like a a part of for a lot of people you know uh, they Otis Redding was kind of like their american new hero so to speak, musical hero so to speak. he was the cool guy that no one else yeah knew. well yeah because it really was underground now and how did that how did it go from an underground movement of uh, minorities loving Otis mm-hmm. Redding to becoming such a popular uh, widespread artist well I, th- I think I can talk about it from the British perspective but I think the same thing was happening in America I think that he was you know Otis was um, you know at that time, the most important, I would say probably the most important artist of Stax Records or Vault Records was the label he was on, but part of the Stax Vault empire, what was burgeoning empire in, um, in Memphis. And um, they were really kind of, in a sense, like rivaling Motown. You know, there was Stax and, and, and Motown were two of the labels that had locations that were location sensitive, you could say, like Detroit was where Motown was and, and Memphis was where Stax was. And the thing that they had in common is that they were using the house band. In the case of Stax was Booker T and the MGs and, 
and the, the marquees on horns. And so the music was very kind of um, organic and, and very, yeah, it wasn't like overproduced. It was very in the moment kind of music, you know. I think it gave very distinct sounds. Yeah, yeah. And they were quite different. And um, so I think I think that the Otis Redding was an important was an, a priority artist for Stax, and also for Atlantic, who were the distributors at the time of, of, of Stax Records. And um, so there was he was just building some momentum, and there weren't really, if I think in, in, in at the time period, I mean there were other male vocalists and male entertainers that were very popular. And think about um, you know before him there had been. Sam Cooke, but then contemporaneously, wow, I like that word, contemporaneously. Yeah, big word, hey. lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, you know, Jackie Wilson and uh, James Brown. I mean, these were the other, you know, male vocalists of the day, entertainers. And and so Otis was, you know, he was, he was like this young blood. I mean, you've got to remember, like, in, in 1965, Otis Redding was 24 years old. He wasn't old. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, these other guys have been around a little longer. So he was like the, yeah, I like the term young blood because that kind of describes how he was in that time period. Um, so in America, he was starting to, to really get some, gain some traction. Um, you know, he did a lot of those tours with um, what they then called the Chitlin Circuit, uh, which was where you know, the people would go on the bus with, uh, you know, a whole group of different artists would tour together. Um and a lot, of, a lot of his audience base was in the South in America. And um, he, built, he built a real following. And then it started to some slowly sort of kind of cross over somewhat. I think that really, you know, if I look back, I think Otis Redding's crossover appeal really happened more, unfortunately, after he, after he died, more than at the time of, of, of his passing. And in Britain, um, well... You know, it's kind of funny. I, I think we were somewhat, uh, in one in one in one sense, we were like ahead of the game because when he came to Britain, Otis was one of the few American or Black American artists who got a uh, the Ready City Go. He got a whole episode of Ready City Go to himself. I think James Brown did, and of course the Motown artist did. So that was like a signif- signifying the degree to which he was had, had this kind of underground following, and it it did. It did spill over. I said it was like Caribbean, initially a Caribbean community that would really embrace him. But I can remember, again, you know, working in a record shop at that point when I left school. I was working in a, a record shop in, in the city, in cheap, on Cheapside in the city. And it was a bookstore, but it had a record department. And I would put the LP covers, like I remember the album in particular was an album called The Soul Album. And it had this kind of strange cover. It wasn't Otis Redding. It was a woman. It's a picture of a woman wearing this funny kind of cape thing on her head. And um, But it was a really attractive cover. And um, I think the reason they put that on there also in America was to because they thought that that would appeal to a wider audience rather than having Otis Redding's photograph on the front. Not that he wasn't a good-looking man, but they just wanted to try to appeal to mm-hmm. a wider audience by putting something, uh, someone else on the cover. Right, this and so that album. I remember putting that in the window of the shop, and uh, you know people were like, "Buy it!" You know, the, it wasn't then at that point. It started to kind of spill over into into um, more just you know kids. You know, when I say kids. I don't like to use that word. Young adults. You know, in in their you know 
working young working professionals in their like, late teens, early twenties, working in in the city in London. Yeah, they'd buy it. They'd be like, "Oh, it's really, oh yeah, yeah, yeah." So it was kind of like he was like hip. You know, yeah, that's really the word I want to say. He became like hip for for British for for British young people. <laughs> Amazing. And you speak about. Otis playing live in the US a lot. Did you ever manage to see him playing in London as you were obviously based there along with a much smaller audience of hardcore fans, let's say, than the US? Well, I saw him, I was so, I mean, I I think, you know, of course, in retrospect, I didn't know this, but I saw him on the only, on the only tour that the Stax Vault artist did, uh, which is called the Stax Vault Review. And that was in March of 1967. And uh, that was, uh, Otis was the headliner, Sam and Dave, uh, Booker T and the MGs were the, the band, the, you know, the house band, the, the, mm-hmm. they were also artists in their own right, and the Marquis Horns and Eddie Floyd was on the show, and I think in Britain, I don't know if Carla Thomas, who was the female primary vocalist at, uh, at Stax, I think she was on some dates, but not on the ones I, not on the one I saw. She was uh, so the, on the one I saw was Arthur Conley, who was a protege of Otis Redding, and famous for his song "Sweet Soul Music." So uh, yes, I did see Otis Redding at the Fairfield Halls in Croydon because I missed the one at Finsbury Park, uh, which was closer to where I lived, and I don't remember the circumstances of why I didn't go. But anyway, uh, to the to the Finsbury Park one, but I did see him at Fairfield Halls in Croydon. And um, I, I, I've just kind of shaked my head because I can't really recreate what it was like seeing that show and seeing him. I, it's really hard to for people to imagine what I was like. It was like we, uh, and there were. I think it was kind of pretty much sold out. I mean, it wasn't. But at that point, you know, people kind of did know who he was in Britain. Not kind of, they did, and 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 he was. Um, and it was also the other artists on the show, but I mean, he was just like, I mean, he really did give you the kind of live performance that had all the emotion of the songs in it. I mean, he was like this, you know, he also came from the same kind of church background as, as some of the other people we mentioned, like James Brown, Jackie was of course female, like Aretha at the time, you know, the, the, those kind of, art, you know, that he came from that gospel church background and he brought that to the kind of um to to his music and he was uh i just i I remember it was like wow the one song that kind of sticks sticks in my mind from the from his performance was a ballad called i've been loving you too long which is now of course a classic otis redding song has been done by loads of other people i just remember when he did that yeah, in the show, it was like I had never seen anyone perform like that because it was so it was so emotional. I mean, he sang it like every word. He meant every word, and it was like I, you just weren't used to seeing. I wasn't. I mean, that's probably one of the first few concerts I ever saw. Um, but British audiences weren't used to seeing that kind of. I don't know what you call it, like raw emotion and passion. I mean, it just wasn't, there wasn't, well, it wasn't part of British culture, to be honest with you. I mean, it just wasn't, I mean, with all respect to the other musicians of the day and artists of the day, I mean, Otis, uh, I mean, 
you couldn't really compare you know <laughs> sacrilegious like Mick Jagger or, I mean you, yeah they were kind of their own thing but but Otis was like the real like the real deal God, yeah like yeah when he sang I've been loving you too long you didn't have any question about the authenticity of it it was like real he was it was just brilliant it was a brilliant performance then he his up tempo stuff was good you know I think he did respect. Uh, I think I, I'm kind of trying to remember the set. I don't remember the set list that well, but you know, it, 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 and it wasn't just all like ballads. It was it's kind of like you know, with that band with him, the Memphis band. These are musicians he recorded with, so it was great. It was absolutely phenomenal. And and I regret that none of your regret, of course, is that you know within you know um, a certain number of months he was gone, and so we never got to see him again. I know, tragically dying at the age of 26. Do you remember where you were when you first heard of Otis Redding's fatal plane crash? Yeah, I mean, I was at home. I mean, 1967, you know, December 1967, I was still living at home. And uh, it was the front page of the Daily... I think it was the Daily Mirror. I don't know what page, paper... I probably was the Daily Mirror at that time. There's a paper we got every day. Um... And it was the it was the front page, and and I I, I was like, what I, I couldn't, and it was on the news. I mean, he was the first. Well, he wasn't the first person in the R and B or soul world to 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 die you know, at a young age, but we didn't have the same relationship to Sam Cooke in Britain that we had to Otis Redding, um, and the fact that it made the front page and it was on the news and it was like he had, he was it was a big deal yeah I, I mean I, I I was like I couldn't I mean back then of course we didn't have mobiles and things so we just had I probably, probably called somebody I don't remember who but yeah a very short career unfortunately but thankfully some absolute gems in his collection of work can you talk us through some of your favorite Otis tracks any key moments, any... Sure, absolutely. Well, I, I mentioned uh, My Girl. Uh, it wasn't one of my personal favourites, but because it was popular, I guess I liked it. But that, that came from an album called Otis Blue, and I already made reference to the other song on there. That was probably, you know, I, I think it's just probably one of the all-time classic soul ballads of, of, of ever. Yeah, period. Yeah, well, just, yeah. And that was I've Been Loving You Too Long, which, by the way, interestingly enough, was not was written by him with another um, R&B soul singer of the day, Jerry Butler, who wasn't, you know, didn't have as much of a career in Britain as he did in America. Um, and, and, and so they wrote it together. And it, it, it's, a, it's just an amazing, amazing song, as I said. But So let's talk about some of the other ones, not quite so necessarily well-known, but personal favorites yeah give us a deep yeah, dive david let's, let's go let's go let's go so i mentioned the soul album and there's one song in there that's really kind of this kind of late night kind of um i don't know how you really describe it. it's called cigarettes and coffee and I'm getting an image yeah and it's kind of this i didn't smoke probably did drink coffee at the time <laughs> 
but it was it's kind of one of the it was so I didn't have a personal reference for me in terms of what it was about but it was kind of like about it's uh, I've got to try to remember the lyric line of it it, just, it had a, it was more like a mood piece uh, and it was not typical of the other things that Otis Redding did it was kind of like this um, that would you have to play it to get the real flavor of it i just remember i loved it <laughs> and it was one of the songs on the album that pe- as an album track that people really focused on uh and then the, then there's from the next album um uh Otis reading the dictionary of soul of course try a little tenderness was like wow i mean that I remember, like, because again, at the time I was working in record shop, and people would just come in for that album because of that one song. And uh, you know, the song is kind of interesting because um, it it had been done. It's a, quite an old song at that point. I think it was originally done in the 30s or 40s in America. Um, interestingly, you know, one of the artists that apparently inspired uh, Otis to do his version of it was a very young Aretha Franklin who recorded it at Columbia. Um, and it was a little different. Her version's a little different, but apparently he wanted to do his own take on it. But the, the thing that he did to the song that made it like so amazing is he sped it up at the end because it's traditionally just a ballad, and he just did that whole. You know, I'm not going to try to replicate. So please do play it somehow <laughs> so that people get what I'm talking about. But just he sped it up at the end. I was like, wow, man, this is turned into a groove at the end. And it was just a real, um, just the way he starts the song is just very, just, yeah, Otis was just had this voice, this kind of, not, didn't sound like anybody. And, and it was just this real, like, from the heart kind of, you know, that opening line is just like, Slow yeah. and sultry. Yeah, you know, she may get weary. Women do get weary. Well, men get weary too, but we all get mm-hmm. weary. But anyway, mm-hmm. but just the whole thing of the song is brilliant. So that, that, and then, um, you know, because I kind of do tend to go into the more obscure stuff even then. Give us a, yeah, there's a, deep, a one, a there's this one song that was not, originally on an album it was a, a single uh could i love you more than words can say and it is and why i love that song in particular because there's a string arrangement on there so it was the first time that i can remember hearing otis Redding with strings now he may have recorded with strings and i never heard it but this one in this arrangement the strings are really noticeable and it's just this i mean it's i think actually it probably is my favorite Otis Redding recording it's, it's, it's a little obscure but i i can still hear it. I, I think i still i might even still have the 45 somewhere on blue stacks <laughs> blue stacks label in in britain but it's just a, a wow it's yeah i don't think it had any particular like personal Reference. I don't know that I had anyone that I was thinking about at the time that I wanted to say, I love you more than words can say. It was just more, it was just, I don't know, just a great song. You got the feeling. Uh, you get the feeling. You get yeah, the yeah. feeling. You yes, felt it. Yes. We're going to take a quick break, but please stay tuned because we'll be back in a moment.
welcome back. We're talking about Otis Redding and his legacy. So that's a deep cut. How do you feel about another big Otis track, Hard to Handle? I love it. I actually do love it. I was just as, as you mentioned it, I was about notice my head sort of bob because I could just hear I could kinda of hear it in my head, you know. Very uh funky and just a groove and just really you know the thing uh, yeah it makes what, what i want to say is that otis redding was not like this ballad only singer i mean his you know up-tempo stuff was just really really great i mean hard to handle I, 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 particularly particularly there's on my list of favorites of, of otis redding favorites but uh, yeah a lot of his music was uh, up-tempo and funky and and yeah he was yeah he, he wasn't yeah well, an upbeat one I love is Love Man. Yes, 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 yes. Well, in the same kind of in the same kind of vein, you know, very like you know, up tempo, you know, kind of yeah, lovely, lovely brass yeah, section. Yeah. I mean, the fun, the, the only song that I was I was could never quite get my head around why what what it there's a song it's it's kind of a mid tempo song called Far 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 Sad Song. This, it's, it's an earlier one. It was a hit. Actually, a hit in America. I don't think it was a hit in Britain. But the far, 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 far. I think there's five fars. Yeah, that's a lot to write out. Yeah, that's a lot of fars. There's a lot of fars. And it's not far. It's fa 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 I'm, I'm saying it's far because it's written as far. But anyway. It's the northern accent. There no you judgment. go. There you no go. Judgment. There you go. But so, so yeah, so, so Otis was a kind you know, I think his appeal was that he was as much a hard hardcore soul singer as he was he could bring you we could bring the funky groove and uh, you know and respect you know uh, Otis Redding's respect is not slow it's it's up it's up tempo there you know um Mr. Pitiful same thing and a lot a lot of his catalog is like up tempo stuff yeah I just have to be a ballad guy <laughs> we can't speak about Otis Redding without talking about sitting on the dock of the bay so talk to me about the track it was not like any other Otis Redding song. It wasn't like anything he had ever recorded. And um, it then went on to become his, the song with which he's most associated. Um, the kind of wistful song written actually when he was in San Francisco. Um, I don't know if he was actually sitting on the dock of the bay when he wrote it, but it was inspired by that by being in in San Francisco and 3,000 miles from home. He was literally writing about his life and singing about his life, 3,000 miles from his family um, and so on. So, And on that one, I read that somewhere that his, um, the really iconic whistle line was actually a spur of the moment thing. Do you have any, do, do you know about that? No, other than the, what you know, that it was a spur of the moment thing. It was kind of a whistle. Yeah, which I'm not again going to attempt to uh, recreate on the <laughs> podcast. You can if you want to. No, you'll have to listen to it. Let's for just listen to it. Yes, yes, yes. Sound more but like not, a seagull. Yes. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting that the the, the song that uh, gave him the most global attention um, and still does it comes from after his passing, and there was some you know I know that that there was some resistance. Um, at the time that he recorded it, to to it even being released ever as a single. I mean, I, I think it was so different from everything else he was doing. I don't know that the people at Stax, even uh, Atlantic, anyone was like. In fact, I was reading earlier, you know, about about there was some, you know, some opposition to doing, to even putting something like that out. 
not after he passed, but before, um, because they said well, this is not like anything you do. Why, you know? So anyway, I digress slightly to go on to um, the albums. The, the music was released after he passed away. My probably track for track, uh, if I had to name an album that's my favorite. Uh, Otis Redding album. It is this album called The Immortal Otis Redding, which I share the distinction, I guess, of it also being the favorite album of a very well-known critic in America by the name of Robert Criscow. He's the Rolling Stone, uh, <laughs> whatever. Uh, what's Head that? honcho? Kind of. He's, he's very well known in America as, as, a, as a music critic. So he also says that's his favorite Otis Redding album. And I can't really tell you why. I just think that there was, other than that there's some songs on there that I just, I love. There was a certain kind of, I don't know if they were intended for a release. I mean, they were, I think they were finished, but they were a different kind of softer side to him. Um, nobody's fault but mine is... Um, actually a uh, gospel song it's a, a spiritual uh this from i don't know what century probably the 19th century um and it is it's really a gospel song but he did it in a different kind of way but the song uh, probably now now i said that earlier that um i love you more than words can say is my favorite but the other one that would kind of be like right up there is a song called i've got dreams to remember and that it kind of ironically, you know, in the, in the wake of him passing, yeah, it's kind of like a, it's got a certain kind of melancholy to it anyway, but it beca- takes on a different kind of flavor when you think about the fact he, it didn't come out when he was alive. Um, and I've got dreams to remember. It's kind of like, I think that's true for all of us. Looking at Otis is not just a pioneer of music. Talk us through the Otis outside of the music that maybe some of us just preconceive him as. Hmm. You know, what was interesting about Otis is he followed in a tradition of um, a couple of other uh, African-American male entertainers of the time, recording artists primarily, performers, uh, Sam Cooke and um, James Brown. They were also businessmen. And uh, that wasn't necessarily the norm of the day. I mean, you know, particularly, I have to say, particularly for African-American entertainers were not known necessarily that they were also business people in terms of being in charge of their own careers in having their own companies. Uh, Otis was a a pioneer in that respect, too. And he um, owned his own publishing company. He also uh, started a little a label of his own, which was you know, short-lived, but it was called Jotus. Um, he uh, owned a ranch, uh, which was actually, I think, called the Big O Ranch. Yeah, I think that's maybe where the nickname came from. I'm not sure that Big O came first or the ranch came first, but it is <laughs> Big Ranch. Otis yeah, or the ranch. <laughs> right. It's a big ranch, a really massive ranch, and which was, you know, so he used his money to invest in his into property and building something. Um, um, and then he was, uh, you know, and he was very much a family man, obviously, wife Zelma, uh, and, and yeah, I think he had three sons and a daughter. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, he, he was very much a, a, a you know, he, he came from what people call humble beginnings, maybe, but he made sure that he used his um, 
wealth or whatever wealth he accumulated um, to establish himself as a business person. It wasn't just like, oh, let me just go out here and you know, be on the road and, you know, just really uh, thinking from a different place, like thinking from the point of view of, of, of what unfortunately didn't happen, which was longevity. What's Otis Redding's legacy? His legacy. Well, I think that if I look at it in, in, in historical context, he, Otis was the really, the, in one sense, the last of the great soul men to come from the South, uh, South of America, obviously. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone who ever has emerged from that particular tradition since, since, his, since his passing that we can say that of. I'm, I'm thinking about other male vocalists, particularly African-American male vocalists is what I'm referring to, or entertainers. And I can't think of anybody. I think he was really, in one sense, the last of the great Southern soul men in that way. Um, and I'm not demeaning the, you know, who, who other people who've come since then. But he really did, uh, you know, the, the, again, it was like he, he wrote the songs, he... He was a performer. He was, he, he, there was something, he didn't sound like anybody. There was no, you couldn't say, well, Otis Redding sounds like so-and-so. He just was very distinctive. And so I think the legacy uh, is of one of the great soul men of the, of the 10th, 20th century, and I guess, you know, of contemporary music, and, and probably the last great mainstream, globally known, Southern Soul Men. Thanks, David. That's about it for this episode of My Classic Soul. Please join us again and we would love it if you could leave us a rating and a review on your favourite podcast platform. Also make sure to follow My Classic Soul on Facebook and visit us at soulmusic.com. Until next time, I'm Bethany Dawson. <laughs>